Last week, I spoke about the preacher, his manner, his message, his motive, and his mission. And oh, it was good. Oh, it was just so good. I hope you listened to that message, and I hope those of you who were here listened to the message as I tried to speak about the pastor, the preacher, and the message that he brings. But this morning, I'm not going to... I'm not going to let you off the hook. This morning, I'm going to speak to you about the church. We've talked about the preacher. Let's talk about the church. And we were in the book of Acts last week. We're going to be in the book of Acts this week. That's a pretty good church to talk about. And if what's interesting to me, and I love how things are put together. I love uh, mechanics of stuff. One of the things that's interesting to me in my study is that in the first 11 chapters of the book of Acts, the word great is used six times. 11 chapters, six times the word great is used as it refers to the church. Now, what's even more interesting is when you dissect that and look at it, five of the six times are descriptive of the church. And the sixth time is a result of the other five. How about that? And as I thought about that and thought about what I wanted to say to you this morning, I thought, well, why don't we talk about, out of the book of Acts, what the book of Acts would call a great church. And let's look and see if we can find some of those common denominators as it relates to our church as it relates to you and I today on the cusp of calling a new pastor to assume the helm of this great ship. And so, I'm going to use several verses. We're going to be in the book of Acts. They're all pretty much concise in the first 11 chapters. But I hope you'll follow along. If you got one of the order of services when you came in, you've got uh, some additional information there that you use. But let's look at it. First of all, I want you to notice that the the, the Bible here speaks the first time of, of greatness in chapter 4 and verse 33. Acts chapter 4 and verse 33. The Bible says, And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Great power. Now, there are several words that are used in the New Testament that are translated power. Uh, One of the words is actually better translated authority. It's the word exudion. But here the word that's used is the word dunamis. And in that root word, you hear the root of a lot of words that we use in the English language. Dunamis, power. Dynamite. Dynamic. Dynamo. All of those words mean power. They mean not just power, but explosive, dynamic, forceful power. Anytime you see that word, it's talking about something that has an explosive nature to it, that has a dynamic nature to it. And so the power of that first century church was the power, the dynamic power, but What was it rooted in? Well, again, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. Just keep reading. The great power gave the apostles witness of what? The resurrection of the Lord Jesus. 
That's what the power is rooted in. Now, what's interesting to me is the very thing that brought power to the church is the very thing that got the church in trouble. If you go back to chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, And as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captains of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. Why did they come upon them? Being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. You don't have to be a Greek scholar to read the first few chapters of the book of Acts and you'll find out the resurrection, the resurrection, the resurrection, the resurrection, the resurrection, the resurrection. Why was that important? Because of the resurrection. Why is it important that we talk about a risen Savior? Because all of the other great world leaders in religion are dead. Mohammed taught and he died and he's still dead. Confucius taught and he died and he's still dead. All of these people, Mohammed taught, he died and he's dead. Jesus Christ died stone cold dead and then got up, brushed dirt and death off of him. And I think he walked out of this that tomb and then turned around and moved the stone oh yeah they need to see this I don't need to move it they need to see it he's alive he's alive we're not here this morning worshiping some dead some idea some philosophy that died 2,000 years ago We're here to worship a living, vibrant, and alive Savior who is right now seated at the right hand of the Father praying for Glenn Owens and praying for you and you and you and you and you. He's alive. And one day he's going to burst open the eastern sky and he's coming back for his church. You know what would be interesting? You call your next pastor and then at 1230 the church is raptured. And he just... That'd be some Sunday, wouldn't it? Amen. The vote is, woo. Great power. Oh, it's power. Listen, folks. It amazes me that I can stand up here and talk to you about somebody who lived 2,000 years ago and it changed your life. That amazes me. That the message of Jesus Christ will change you from the inside out. And it'll not only change your life, it'll change your eternity. Oh, the power, the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. You, You see, that power is the power that makes the difference. It's the power that can change hurt to happiness, tears to laughter, and disappointment to joy. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. But not only do I see great power here, but look in that same verse, verse 33, look at toward the end of it. And great grace was upon them all. Now, if the power is rooted in the resurrection, what is the grace rooted in? Calvary. Calvary. God's riches at Christ's expense. On Calvary. 
His grace is made known. Oh, his power. His power is in the resurrection. He conquered death. But on that cross, he showed us grace. You know, there's a lot of difference between mercy and grace and judgment. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. I don't deserve grace, but God gives us grace. Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. Judgment, you get what you deserve. Now, friend, if you want judgment, have at it. I'm just telling you, you're not going to like it. But there's mercy and grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank God for his mercy. I'm As Glenn Owens, let me tell you, thank God for his mercy. Not for you, but for me. His mercy is made new every single day. And I'm so grateful because I'm one who needs it every single day. And Susan said, amen, amen. Oh, great power and great grace. You see, these are the foundation stones of the church. When I was younger, in high school and college, I worked for a contractor, and we built stuff. And it was a, it was a great job because I learned something very important, the foundation. We spent a lot of time on the foundation of whatever we were building. Because if the foundation is out of sync, by the time you get the wall and start trying to attach the ceiling, it won't fit. Things are out of plumb. Things are, uh, and it's the same way with the church. If the church doesn't start with the foundation of the resurrection and Calvary, if the foundation doesn't start with great grace and great mercy, if the church doesn't start at that as the bedrock foundation, it's out of sync. And in my humble but correct opinion, it's not a church. It may be a social club. It may do a lot of nice things. But we're not here to do a lot of nice things. We're here to worship God. And in through us, he will do nice things. That's what the church is all about. The great grace, the great power that we have comes from God himself. But again, we're not through. If you will, look at chapter 5 and verse 5. The Bible says, And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And great fear came on all of them that heard these things. You see, not only does that first century church talk about great power and great grace, but there was great fear. And I want to use the word here, awe. Because I think we today, we've let the word fear conjure up in our minds certain feelings that I don't know that necessarily is what the, the, the Bible is talking about. You see, there's a vast difference between having to be afraid of God and to have the fear of God. I don't think God wants us to be afraid of him, but I think he wants us to fear him. And the fear brings in an aspect of awe of God. We don't serve God because we think he's going to come down out of heaven and step over us and squash us. We serve him because we love him. And we serve him because he is God. He is the great holy God. And out of that I respect and have awe from him. But fear, I think the world has yet let us prostitute that word to make it mean something that I'm not sure exactly fits in our relationship with the Lord. 
Psalms 1, uh, 11, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What does that mean? It means I don't care how smart you are, if you don't start off by an awe of who God is, you're a dummy. You're just not very smart. I mean, if you can excel in all of this but miss that, the the fear of the Lord, the awe-inspiring majesty of who God is, is the beginning of understanding anything else in life. He's the God who's created you. He's the God who knows everything about you and still loves you. That's the God that we have awe and respect for. That's the God who loves us. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. What that means is there ought to be a holy dislike in our soul about sin. I ought to hate sin. It doesn't mean I don't sin. I sin every day. Brother Owens, what do you do? None of your business is What do I do? I do exactly what you do. And I hate it. I hate it about me. I believe in once saved, always saved. Not because that's a Baptist doctrine, but it's a Bible doctrine. It's the only way any of us would ever get to heaven. Once we're saved, God keeps us. God, we don't lose your salvation and then have to get it back. You know, that, that's contrary to Scripture. But listen, once saved, always saved. I heard a guy one time say, Brother Owens, if I believe that, I'd go out and sin all I want. Well, sweet friend, I do. I sin all I want. The difference is I don't want. Nothing would please me more than to not sin. But when I do sin, I have an advocate. I have mercy and grace with God the Father through Jesus Christ. That's where he is right now. The right hand of the Father saying, he did it again, Lord. There he did it again. But he's one of ours. He has forgiveness. Now, God will deal with me. God will deal with you. But the fear of the Lord is completely contrary to the nature of who God is in a sense of, of not being able to approach him and, and afraid he's going to get us. God's not out to get us. God's out to save us through Jesus Christ. It, it, God's not willing that any should perish, but all should come into repentance. God wants all of us to come to him. Now, what had happened here preceding verse 5? Well, Ananias and Sapphira. Do I have to tell you any more? Let me give it in capsule form. They lied and they died. They lied about money. And this is the thing about it that's so interesting. They didn't have to lie. Now, I'm not saying you should lie, and I'm not saying you have an excuse to lie. But nobody asked them to give all of it. They decided to be the big shot and say, well, we've given it all. We sold some problem. We gave it all. Well, they didn't. They lied about it. Boom. The other one's out, getting ready to come in. When they come in, says, did you give all? Yeah, we gave it all. Said, listen, you hear that sound? That's the feet of the people coming in to take you out. Boom. The Bible says that when that happened, great fear (laughs) came on the early church. Well, I guess so. How would you like to have a capital campaign in that church, huh? Hmm? (laughs) Amen. Amen. What was God doing? God was showing that you can't show disrespect to God 
and get away with it. Now, that doesn't mean everybody that does that is going to just drop dead right here. But I'm telling you, there's ramifications. God deals with them. And God deal with me. God deal with you. And he was teaching the early church they ought to be in awe, a respect, a dignity. God is not the old man upstairs. God is not George Burns chomping on a cigar. God's not any of those things. He's the thrice holy God of Israel. He is a flaming fire, an all-consuming flame. He's holy. But in his holiness, he loves us. And he loves us enough to send his one and only son to suffer and bleed and die on the cross. And simply by faith in what he did and receive what he gives, we can be brought in right relationship with God for all eternity. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Oh, there was, there was great power in that early church. There was great grace in that early church. There was great fear or awe in that early church. But out of that all, there was something else. Chapter 8 and verse 1. Chapter 8 and verse 1 says, And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time there was great, a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. If you look down in verse 3, it says, And as for Saul, he made havoc of the church. Dr. W.A. Criswell is one of my real heroes in the faith. Dr. Criswell was a linguist, a, a Greek and Hebrew scholar. And on that word, uh, havoc, he said that is the most intensive word in the Greek language for what was going on. They were not dragging people out and beating them up. They were dragging people in the street and slaughtering them. And Saul was consenting unto this. This is pre-Paul. He was consenting unto this. There was a reign of terror taking place against the church. And there was persecution on every front. And all of it was rooted back to the fact they kept talking about the resurrection. They talked about the resurrection because it happened. One of the things you, you can read in the Bible and you can read secular history at this time, not even written uh, as part of the Bible, there's no refuting the resurrection. They couldn't because it happened. Now, some chose not to believe it. Some mocked it and made fun of it, and some said it meant something else. But nobody refuted it any more than they could refute the sun came up this morning because it happened. Now, they tried to explain it away and make it mean something else, but they could not deny it happened. And when you attach then the spiritual ramifications of the fact he conquered death and hell... You and I can conquer death and hell by belief and faith in him. Whoa, all of a sudden the religion of the day went, whoa, 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 that's going a little too far. No, no, that's not, that doesn't track with us. So we see here taking place all of this abundant of power and grace and fear, and it's focused here on persecution. Religion doesn't save. Religion is popular in America. But Christianity lost something when it moved from the catacombs to the cathedrals. It became popular. It became popular to be a Christian. Now, we're going through a time today where it's not as popular as it used to be. But there are a lot of people that come to church today out of respectability. 
They come to church today so they can be seen, so they can do a business deal. They come to church somehow to salve their conscience that coming to church makes them a Christian. Coming to church and sitting in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than a car sitting in a garage becomes a, a horse. I mean, the place doesn't make a difference. It has to be a personal relationship with God through Christ. And so we see the persecution beginning to mount, and we see it today. Religion today is popular, but religion never has, never will save. Religion by its own definition is man trying to find God. And man's looking a lot of strange places to find God. Man will do a lot of strange things to find God. We have a whole group of people today that are killing people in the name of their God. They're right. But that's not the Jehovah God of the Bible. Amen. Religion is man trying to find God. Christianity is God in Christ finding man. It's the complete reverse. Christianity is not even a religion by its definition. Christianity stands alone. There are a lot of great religions in the world, but there's one Christianity because God had one son, and it is through that one son the exclusivity of Jesus Christ mandates that salvation comes through him and him alone. The word persecution is rooted in the word pursue. Pursue. And the word pursue means to follow around, to try to check out. There, there's some humor in the Bible if we'll look at it. In Luke chapter 1, Luke, uh, excuse me, Luke chapter 6 verse 1, listen to what the Bible says. This, this is kind of funny when you really stop and listen to it. And it came to pass on the second Sabbath after the first that he, Jesus, went through the cornfields and his disciples plucked the ears of corn and did eat, rubbing them in their hands. And certain of the Pharisees said unto them, Why do ye that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath day? And Jesus answering them said, Have you not read so much as this, what David did when he himself was hungry and they were with him? How he went into the house of God and did take and eat the showbread and gave also to them that were with him, which is not lawful to eat, but for the priest alone. And he said unto them, The Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Now, the story here is the disciples, they're on their way somewhere and they're walking through a field and they just reach out and get a few grains of corn, rub it together and pop them in their mouth. Jesus said, That's fine, just... Give me some. Oh, Pharisees. Oh, oh, he's working on the Sabbath. You've broken one of the Sabbath laws. Oh, let me ask you a question. What were a, gr a group of Pharisees doing hiding in a cornfield? <laughs> they were pursuing him. Hiding, trying to catch him doing something that they could hold against him. Now, do you know... There are folks around today that are watching you. They might not be hiding in the cornfield, but they're hiding. They're watching. They're trying to catch you, do something, say something, act a certain way. Oh, you can't be a Christian. You can't be a Baptist. You can't be a member of that church. You said you did all of this stuff. Listen, folks, there's nothing you can't do outside the power of the Holy Spirit. You can do anything. That's why we have to be spirit-controlled all the time. That's why we have to have God's Spirit guarding what we say. Because there are folks who are persecuting, people who are pursuing us, trying to catch us, do something, and so that they can use it against not just us, but use it against the church 
and ultimately against Jesus Christ. How can a Christian do those things? Well, a Christian can do anything. That's why we have to stay close and clean before God. So we see here in this church great power. We see great or abundant grace. We see great fear or awe. We see great opposition or persecution. But this is what's interesting to me. If you read chapter 8, we were in verse 1. Go on down to verse 6. Acts chapter 8, verse 6. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which uh, Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with loud voices, came out of many that were possessed, and many taken with palsy, and that were lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Now, before and after this, you'll see there's persecution going on. But in the midst of the persecution, there's joy. When you read verse 1 and you read verse 3, what, what's taking place there, it, it's, it's almost startling that in the midst of the persecution, they would be joyful. In the midst of the pressure and opposition, they were joyful. Can I explain that? Well, I can't, but Jesus can. Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 and 12. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you. Here's the first qualifier, falsely. Second qualifier, for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they, the same people, in effect, the same people persecuted the prophets that are persecuting you. The same type of people, the same spirit that persecuted the prophets are the same spirits that are leading people to persecute you. So what is he saying? He's saying when we live for the Lord Jesus Christ and when we are persecuted falsely, in other words, we haven't done something that we should be persecuted about. We're living for the Lord. And we're living for Him and displaying for the world to see Him through our life. We ought to be happy about it when we're persecuted. In fact, we ought to go home and just giggle all night long. Why? Because the prophets were persecuted. Jesus was persecuted. Why shouldn't I be persecuted? In fact, I think this. Here on this planet, the closest thing I can do to experience what Christ experienced and what the prophets experienced is persecution. That's the closest. Now, they're not going to draw and quarter me out in front of the church. I'm not going to be hung. I'm not going to have my property taken away from me. Hopefully. <laughs> but I can be persecuted. People can talk about me. Oh, that's old holy Joe. You don't know what it's like to be a Baptist preacher and get on an airplane. Yeah, man, how you doing? Good, good. I need three or four of these just before we take off. Does that bother you? Oh, have at it. If you want to drink embalming fluid, that's fine with me. By the way, I'm a banker. What do you do? I'm a Baptist preacher. I preach the gospel. Oh, I had a guy one time say, oh, Parson, <laughs> I would have never drank this if I'd have known you were a Baptist preacher. 
parson. It shows you the spiritual depth of this guy. And I said, don't worry about it. I said, people don't go to hell for drinking beer. Right. (laughs) 30 minutes later, he said, okay. People don't go to hell for drinking beer. I said, no. Okay, why do people go to hell? I said, for rejecting Jesus Christ. Yeah. I, I, I think I've had enough. <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing today what people think. It's amazing today what you think it takes to get you to heaven. It's amazing today what we go through. It's amazing today the persecution that sometimes, sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's overt. But listen, if I'm speaking a word for Jesus Christ in the midst of a hostile generation, you can expect somebody's not going to like it. And when it happens and I'm falsely accused for his sake, bring it on. Because that's the least I can do for one who hung naked on a cross and suffered and bled and died for me. That's the least. Oh, Brother Owens, he's going to say bad words about you. Who cares if he says a good word about me up there? Persecution. It's going to come. And the higher you lift your head up out of the crowd, the more maters are going to be flung at you. I'm just telling you. You take a stand for Jesus Christ, and somebody's going to throw something sooner or later. Well, we've seen great power, great grace, great fear, great persecution, great joy. But as I told you at the beginning, these are descriptive terms. The last term is great numbers, and we find this in chapter 11. Chapter 11 and verse 21. The Bible says, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. There's a whole group of folks today that are into church growth, and some of it's good, but some of it I think is dangerous. They're focused on numbers. Now, folks, I believe in numbers. I was an executive pastor in several churches, I, I, and, and I worked for the convention. Numbers were important. Numbers indicate something. But if we're not careful, we focus on the result, and we don't focus on what takes to get the result. Now, let, let, me, let me explain this. I, I want the church to grow. I want us to have more numbers. I want us to have a, uh, be able to have, have more and more and more people, because that's more and more people that are going to go into the kingdom. But you don't focus on the numbers in order to do that. The numbers are a function of great power, great grace, great fear, great opposition, great joy. If the church does what it's supposed to do, the the growth will happen naturally. A wise pastor simply guards from those things that will stop growth. This isn't the pastor's church. This isn't the interim pastor's church. This isn't the former pastor's church. This is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will grow his church. What we have to do is take away the hindrances from 
stopping the growth and allow it to happen. If we will do what we're supposed to do, he will do what he's going to do, and the church naturally will grow. The numbers will take care of themselves. As we do what we're supposed to do, it will just be a natural function of God's Spirit. Dr. B.H. Carroll, who was the first president of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, Dr. Carroll estimates that the church went to 40,000 members in the first six months. They didn't have television. They didn't even have printing press. They didn't even have theologically trained ministers. They didn't have buses. They didn't have EE, CWT, Winwire, or Whoopi. They didn't have any training. They just consistently talked about the grace of God. And they consistently talked about the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they consistently talked about the soon coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ back for his church. God blessed. Folks, this isn't hard if we just do it the way the book says do it. Now, you're going to call a preacher next Sunday, hopefully. Hopefully. I mean, you should. You're going to examine him closely. They already have, but you're going to examine him. Who's going to examine you? Don't ask of your pastor anything you're not willing to support and do to see this community come to faith in Jesus Christ. The call for a pastor is also a call on the church. Are we just going to play games for another 10 years? Are we going to show great grace, great power, great joy? Suffer some persecution and let God do what God can do best. And that's grow his church. I think we ought to. What about you? I said, I think we ought to. What about you? Now, God's going to hold you accountable for that. You said amen. You said amen before the Lord. Amen. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege to be a part of the church. Thank you for the privilege to be a part of the redemptive work of Christ. We're not only the result of the work of Christ, we're evidence of the work of Christ. And so the church is here to give you praise and glory. But the church is also here to impact a society with the gospel, the good news. As we move toward next week, I pray all the plans will fall into place perfectly. I pray for traveling mercies for the pastor and his family. I pray that all of the meetings will go just the way you want them to go. 
And I pray next Sunday when he stands here and preaches the word of God that you will anoint that message. And I pray the church and the pastor will have a common mind and a common purpose in these coming days. This morning we always offer an invitation to somebody who's never experienced the great mercy and great grace of Jesus Christ. So if there's somebody here who needs to come to Christ this morning, to have their sins forgiven, we offer that. Maybe there are folks that need to come this morning and rededicate their life. Maybe there are folks that need to come this morning and join a church. What perfect time before the new pastor comes to be on board to welcome him to our church. Maybe there are other decisions. Any decision today that will bring honor and glory to your son, our Savior, I thank you for in advance. And I claim it in his name and solely for his purposes. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.